You're listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au. Understanding our heritage helps us understand who we are today. If we understand who we are and the trajectory of history which has brought us here, it may help us understand where we are going. In my family, I've probably been the one most interested in the genealogy of my ancestors. I've had an interest in this sort of thing since my 20s, but it hasn't been until the last five years or so that I've really spent much time on it. Of course, it's been dramatically easier with the advent of websites which allow access to centuries of church and civic records. No need to travel to tiny villages all over England or wherever to inspect dusty records in churches and the basements of town halls. And my family research has been interesting. I had this uh, romantic notion that I'd received some mystical romantic genes from the Irish side of the family, from my two Irish great-grandparents, but my research revealed that most of my forebears were of English stock. I have one German great-grandparent. Interestingly, one great-grandparent was a Salvation Army officer and another great-grandparent was a lay preacher in the Anglican Church. Perhaps the qualities I inherited from them will help explain why I've ended up here as a minister. Picking up the theme of heritage on a broader level, I note that there has been some agitation in the community over the last couple of years in relation to the heritage buildings of Adelaide, including some of the character areas where we have streets full of 19th century villas. There have even been rallies with people holding up signs, Heritage Matters. As a community, we value the past as long as we can live with all modern conveniences. As this is the first opportunity to share some reflections at Shady Grove, which has such a special place in the history of the Unitarian Church in South Australia, I thought it would be worthwhile sharing some reflections on the long arc of Unitarian history. Reflecting briefly on the pre-Christian era, it appears that monotheism was not all that common. Most societies seem to have had a pantheon of supernatural beings. In some cultures, though, I see a tendency toward greater abstraction as opposed to personification of divinity and a tendency for monotheism to develop. For example, there is evidence that the Semitic peoples were pantheistic if one goes back far enough, perhaps more than 3,000 years ago. By the time of the Babylonian captivity of the Judeans, however, Jewish monotheism had been fully adopted. Yeshua, or Jesus, was therefore born into a monotheistic culture. He may well have described himself as a son of God, although it is debatable whether he described himself as a God. I'm fascinated by the multiple interpretations of the significance of Jesus in the century following his life. 
It was by no means unanimous that he was a God on earth. Obviously, the view which prevailed was that Jesus was God at the same time that the creator of the universe was God. And there was a third distinct being, the Holy Spirit, which was considered by the Roman Church to be God as well. There were diverse early attempts to explain how Jesus could be both God and man. For a long time, the views of the philosopher Origen prevailed, which rendered Jesus divine but subordinate to the ultimate God. Notable in the developing theology was Arius, a member of the Egyptian clergy. He reasoned that if there was a creator God who created everything, then God must have created Jesus. So if, even if Jesus was divine, Jesus could not be co-equal to the God of creation. This was hotly debated. In 325, the Council of Nicaea, or Nicaea, under the watchful eye of Emperor Constantine, found by majority that the ideas of Arius were heretical. He died soon after from a terrible stomach ailment, possibly from poisoning. Arius was not Unitarian in the recently modern sense, as he still acknowledged that Jesus was divine. What was unacceptable to the great religious powers of the day was the, the attack on the doctrine of the Trinity. The orthodox view, the Trinity, was finally and utterly confirmed at the Fifth Ecumenical Council in 553, over 500 years after the life of Jesus. In the end, the Trinity concept had to be described as a mystery. And I say this intending no disrespect to my Catholic and Orthodox Christian friends. Orthodoxy reigned largely without question for nearly a thousand years. There were a number of factors 500 years ago which contributed to the questioning and dissent which was the Protestant Reformation. At the end of the 1400s, Jews and Muslims expelled from Spain brought ancient works with them to northern Italy, which was becoming a focus for civilization and learning. At the same time, Greek clergy were fleeing the lands occupied by the Ottoman Turks, also bringing scriptures in Greek, which were translated and shared around in Renaissance Italy and then further afield. The advent of the printing press accelerated the spread of ideas, including heretical ones. That fourth principle of today's Unitarians, the free and responsible search for truth and meaning, seems to be a deep human impulse. It kept erupting again and again through the history of our culture as we trace it back to England and Europe. In Spain in 1531, Michael Servetus published a book on the errors of the Trinity. Hoping to escape persecution by the Catholic authorities, he fled to Switzerland, which had become home to Calvinism, a strict and literal reading of Christianity. It turned out to be a bad choice. Servetus was burned at the stake for his heresy, and not to be seen as soft on heresy, the Catholic Church created an effigy of Servetus and burned that at the stake as well. Events were turning out differently in Transylvania. The nobility were Hungarian, although the territory mostly lay in modern-day Romania. There was a Roman Catholic priest, Ferenc David, or Francis David in English. Persuaded by the arguments of Luther, he became a Lutheran and later a Calvinist. Upon reflection, however, he abandoned adherence to the Trinity and became a Unitarian. To sort out religion for the kingdom, in 1568, 
King Sigismund organized a 10-day debate with David against Catholic, Lutheran and Calvinist opponents. King Sigismund was persuaded by the Unitarian arguments. He declared himself Unitarian, possibly the only Unitarian king in history, although I haven't had the chance to ask King Charles III of Australia yet. King Sigismund also published the Edict of Torda. Torda was a town in the kingdom. It was a decree of religious tolerance which allowed, quote, each person to maintain whatever religious faith he wishes with old or new rituals, while we at the same time leave it to their judgment to do as they please in the matter of faith, just so long as they bring no harm to anyone at all. This is all the more remarkable because at the same time, elsewhere in Europe, heretics were being burned at the stake. Transylvania and neighbouring Poland were havens for those with anti-Trinitarian views for about a hundred years before the pressure of the Catholic Church diminished their presence. Rakow, a town in southern Poland, became a centre for such heretics. A Unitarian church was established there and a Rakow Catechism, or Statement of Beliefs, was published. A young Italian named Socinus travelled there after visiting the Unitarians in Transylvania. His influence became so great that the Polish Unitarians became known as Socinians. He believed that Jesus was a perfect human being, but not God. An English translation of the Rakoff Catechism appeared in England in about 1614. Despite Anglican Church efforts to have this anti-Trinitarian work burnt, copies continued to circulate. Independently, a brilliant scholar by the name of John Biddle was examining the Christian Bible. He knew the whole of the New Testament by heart, in English and Greek. He concluded that the Trinitarian verse in the first epistle of John, chapter 5, verse 7, was a late addition and not part of the teaching of Christ. As it says in the King James Version of the Bible, quote, For there are three that be a record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. By the mid-1600s, it was possible to go back to early copies of Greek scriptures to establish that verses such as that had not been part of the Christian scriptures until a later translation into Latin. Biddle debated and confounded Orthodox Anglicans of his day. He published a pamphlet called Twelve Arguments Against the Deity of the Holy Spirit, for which he was sent to prison. In fact, he spent most of the years between 1647 and 1662 in prison, where he eventually died. In his brief periods out of prison, he continued to preach the Unitarian message to anyone who wanted to hear it. His catechism was burnt by the public hangman. This was also the period of the early Quakers. In a notorious case, James Naylor, a Quaker, reenacted the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem by riding on a donkey into Bristol. He was convicted of blasphemy, a red-hot iron was bored through his tongue, and he was branded with the letter B for blasphemer on his forehead. This was in addition to two years in jail with hard labour. Partly as a result of Biddle's case, and others who were questioning the orthodox interpretation of the scripture, 
The English Parliament in 1648 introduced the Blasphemy Act, which stated, quote, Any who shall, by preaching, printing or writing, controvert deity of the Son or the equality of Christ with the Father shall suffer the pains of death, as in the case of felony. Despite such harsh laws, Unitarian gatherings continued. Research estimates that there were a thousand Unitarian groups in England by the beginning of the 18th century. In this context, Joseph Priestley was born in 1733. As a scientist, he was known for his discovery of oxygen. He became an Anglican priest, but published works which questioned the divinity of Jesus. In 1791, a mob burned his home, his church and his library. Priestley and his family fled to London and then on to America. He preached Unitarian services in Pennsylvania. By the time Priestley arrived, there was already a Unitarian movement which emanated from educated Boston families seeking a rational, liberal form of Christianity. Later, an emphasis on the individual search for truth proved attractive in the evolving American society. In 1961, the Unitarian and Universalist churches combined, hence the Unitarian Universalist tag. The Universalists, with a core belief in the ultimate salvation of everyone, were similarly liberal and individualistic in outlook. Meanwhile, back in England, tolerance of dissenting Christians allowed Unitarianism to flourish. By the 1830s, there were members of Parliament who were openly Unitarian, for example. A substantial neo-Gothic chapel was built in Manchester in 1839. Although Unitarianism was becoming respectable in parts of England, dissenters remained under some legal disabilities under English law. Against this background, Unitarians began arriving in South Australia as early as 1851. In 1854, a public meeting was held at which it was decided that money would be collected to employ a minister. Reverend Crawford Woods, a Unitarian from England, arrived in 1855. He conducted services in people's homes. Growth in numbers required a church. Building of the Wakefield Street Church was commenced in 1856. I think I was in primary school when it was pulled down, but I have no doubt that some people here remember it well. Meanwhile, two Unitarian families had settled near Mount Barker. Shady Grove was established in 1858 as a school building for their children. After use as a school for a number of years, it was dedicated as a place of worship. Early settlers referred to it as Tadmor in the Wilderness, using the Hebrew name for Palmyra an important oasis for travellers in biblical times. In my research, I found there was also a Tranmere Unitarian Church operating from 1932 to 1956, but I could find little more detail. The Norwood Building was opened in 1971. Unitarianism continued as very much a Christian denomination up to this point. Of course, for most of our history, the congregation believed in God, but just one. Hence the traditional design of the church and the retention of the beautiful stained glass windows resplendent with Christian motifs moved from the Wakefield Street Church. However, the cultural winds of change of the 1960s must have had some effect. It was in 1977 that the group formally dropped the 
Christian from the name of what had been the Unitarian Christian Church of SA Incorporated. I must admit I was surprised to see the results of a survey conducted just a few years ago showing that the great majority of Unitarians here now identify as atheist or agnostic. Still, I do sense that many have a sense of the divine, even if it seems beyond definition. When I was organising conferences for the Multi-Faith Association about 10 years ago, we had registration forms with an optional question about religious affiliation. One group wrote down post-Christian. This was probably quite naughty, coming from a group of Catholics. My humble observation is that Unitarians in Adelaide have entered a post-Christian era. The Christian heritage, so firmly implanted in the structure of the Nord place of worship, can be seen as a two-edged sword. For those leaving traditional Christianity to explore their spirituality without dogma, the venue and the Protestant worship format can be a comfortable resting place. For the more numerous and younger seekers who have hardly been to a church in their lives, I'm not sure whether the Christian look and feel of the place is an attraction or a deterrent. Is Nord a church or a meeting house? I've heard both terms used by members of the congregation. Is this a symptom of haziness about what we have to offer? Apart from the seven principles, which are uncontroversial, can we define what seekers have to gain from joining us? I note also that there is a tab on the website, Why We're Here, but if you click on it, no answer is provided. It has information about bus routes and even what to wear, pretty well anything goes, but it doesn't actually explain why we're here. Perhaps I just need to resign myself to the fact this sums up the modern Unitarian. We do have a wonderful experience and the potential for spiritual growth on offer, but I wonder if this great opportunity is obscured by our lack of definition. I look forward to our discussions about this. We hope you've enjoyed this Expanding Horizons podcast. These podcasts are the intellectual property of the presenter. They can be used only with the express permission and appropriate acknowledgement of the presenter. This permission can be obtained by emailing admin at unitariansa.org.au. Please feel free to leave a comment or visit us on Facebook or Twitter by searching SA Unitarians or by visiting our website at unitariansa.org.au.